You're listening to The Driven, the podcast that gives you the news and the views, the ins and the outs on electric vehicles. The Driven is presented by Giles Parkinson, the editor of Renew Economy and The Driven websites, and is brought to you by ZeroMo, a non-profit initiative helping the transition to battery-powered gardening equipment and electric vehicles using 100% renewable energy. Hello and welcome to this episode of The Driven Podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. Well, we've had a fantastic response to our first two episodes, the interview with Stanford University's Tony Sieber and also Australia's Chief Scientist Alan Finkel. And we've got a great guest for this third episode. But before we do that, I'd just like to say thank you very much to Zero Mo, the non-profit organisation, uh, which is supporting this podcast and will support a series of, um, of, of interviews over the next couple of months. And we really do thank you for it. Zero Mo is playing a critical role in encouraging the transition to battery-powered power tools. It's not just EVs which are going to capture our attention, it's all the different devices that we have around the home and in the garden and in the, in the power shop. Well, I guess for the third podcast is Simon Hackett. Now, some of you may know Simon as a very, one of Australia's very most successful internet entrepreneurs and also the largest shareholder in the battery storage company Redflow. He also happens to be one of the most enthusi- the greatest enthusiasts in the country for electric vehicles and for Tesla EVs in particular. Uh, he, was, he took the very first Tesla Roadster to Australia and was also the first recipient of the Tesla Model S. We had great fun talking to Simon about not just his own usage of electric vehicles, the way he charges them, but also his views on where Australia should go in EVs and how it should get there. I do hope you enjoy the interview. Simon Hackett, uh, thanks for joining the Driven Podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Look, we're talking to you because I think it's fair to say that you are probably one of the first adopters of electric vehicles in Australia, but it's probably truer to say that you're probably the first adopter of Tesla electric vehicles. Have I got that right? Yes, there's been an organisation in Australia for the longest time called AEVA, the Australian Electric Vehicle Association, and they've been they've been messing about with electric vehicles in Australia since since well before I could kind of spell EV. But their focus has been from such an early point that they they've been helping a community to do EV conversions before EVs as a commercial product existed as something you could just go and buy. I think it's fair to say I'm one of the first people to buy a production electric vehicle in Australia and I've been a serial first person to do that and yes they've happened to be Teslas there's been lots of them for me um, and and yeah so I've been trying to be a part of the part of the mainstreaming of EVs. So tell me what attracted you to EVs in the first place and then Tesla in particular? Some years ago now uh, there was a car in America called the GM EV1 uh, really the car that, that started the notion of production electric cars and there's a fabulous documentary called Who Killed the Electric Car that tells that story rather well. I had some friends in California who had two GM EV1s and they did the best possible thing to get someone hooked on the idea of an EV. I was visiting them and they, they, they handed me the equivalent of the key. I say that because even at that point the car actually had a four digit pin to start it. Is that right? And what what, what year yeah. are you talking? <laughs> um, gee, whenever those things were out, um, I want to say <laughs> I want to say it's mid-90s, I have to look it up now, it's ages ago. Um, and, they, and they handed me the pin and, and the car and said, go away for the weekend. Uh, and I went away for the weekend and I came back utterly hooked. You know, and that car was a little two-seater, um, sort of cheerful, not fantastic range, lead-acid batteries. But GM had actually 
Um, they built the car into sufferance. They didn't actually want EVs to exist. They built it under sufferance to get access to the Ameri to keep access to the Californian internal combustion market. Right. But unfortunately, someone at GM forgot to tell their, EV their engineers to make a to make a bad car, and they actually made it. They actually made a great one. It looked a bit like a refugee from the Jetsons, um, and and I don't think that's actually a good idea for for mainstreaming EVs. But man, it worked, and I came back hooked. <laughs> I came back absolutely hooked, and I thought from that moment on, Giles. Um, as soon as somebody can sell me an electric car in Australia, that doesn't suck. I'm so buying it. Because <laughs> that's true, isn't it? Because, I mean, EVs were all about, some, you know, I mean, pretty much the, the, the whole idea was confined to golf buggies and things like that. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And, and this car was the first one that really didn't suck and really had all those other visceral things that are just pleasant about an EV. So what happened to it? They killed it. The, the EV one, well, you see, yeah, there was a, there was a, it was an emissions thing, you know, incredibly, given that these days we're only barely realising that maybe emissions matter, right? Back at that point in California, um, the, the California Air Resources Board had so much influence over, over car sales because they were seeing their, their state full of smog that they demanded a rising percentage of cars with zero emission. And there was massive lobbying against that that was ultimately successful. Um, from the car makers, but in the meantime, they had to make a few, and GM actually didn't sell these cars, they leased them, precisely so that after that two-year lease period, um, they could take them back, and rather famously, apropos of that documentary, they crushed them, they destroyed the vehicles, they really didn't want them. And you know, this is, this is a story which in 2018 sounds unbelievable, but it's absolutely true. So there's one of those left in the museum, the rest were actually crushed, because GM really didn't like the idea. In a way, they still don't like the idea because no, I think that, no, that, that, exactly. That, um, because they're actually, even though they're making again quite nice electric vehicles, I think the um, yes, GM yes, the Chevy Bolt, I think, isn't it? Right. But they're, but they're still lobbying to actually sort of push back these emission standards. Yeah, you're correct. So, so in the meantime, though, again, no one told their engineers to make a car that sucked, and so that car did the great things EVs are good at. Um, it it's silent. It worked beautifully no gear changes um, and you know by side effect it was clean but man it just you got into this thing and you got out and said oh my gosh I have just driven the future <laughs> there was no doubt about it right and and I wanted one of these things not because they were going to save the planet but because they were just very pleasant things the instant response of an EV to putting your foot down is one of the things it's hard to communicate until you've done it and then once you've done it Getting back into a conventional car makes you feel like you're driving a combine harvester. <laughs> it's that, pleasant. You know, that's is. actually the underlying driver that's why the best way to sell an EV is to sit someone in the driver's seat for 30 minutes and then they, then they start plotting their own purchase. It's that simple. Look, I still think the best way to get policy movement on EVs in Australia is to take a whole fleet of them to Parliament House and make, and, and make all the politicians drive one home. So... Um... <laughs> Yeah, indeed. <laughs> well, well, it turns out in, in the middle there, before I could buy a Tesla in Australia, and I, and I even couldn't buy a Tesla in Australia, I privately imported the first one. In the middle there, 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 were, there was a shot at creating uh, an Australian industry in professional conversions of internal combustion engines. Uh, and I actually drove a, a conversion for a while. Uh, and, and, but, you know, I really what, 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 just wanted to buy a the... thing that worked. Right. Was that the better place model or was that actually just sort of conversions of existing cars? No, no, it wasn't. Um, the name's not coming to me. It was a, it, it was a, a company in Melbourne uh, that was actually taking a little, little, um, a little gets and turning it into an electric one. Yes, uh, yes. And 
there's still a few of those around at the moment. Yeah, yeah. Just sort of doing still around the one... and things like that. But it's just you know it's once every year or something like that, or one every three months. Yeah, exactly. And and it wasn't quite done well enough. They, the 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 one mistake in that just to save a bit of money is they kept a two speed gearbox in the thing, which is actually the last thing you need in an EV, and it made it complicated to drive. Um, but but I still drove one around for some years because I was keen. But but gee, finally finally I met this guy at a conference in California some years later um, who had a PowerPoint. Well, sorry, not a PowerPoint presentation, a Word document with a computer graphic impression of what the first Tesla would look like, and that man's name was Elon Musk. Is that so? So what was Elon Musk doing at the time, and and, and what did you think of him? What did you make of him? Oh, he had, he always had stars in his eyes in a good way, and clearly, you know, in SpaceX, he's literally shooting for those stars, but. Uh, clearly, he's, he's had better media training too since then. He was quite, he was not a good public speaker, uh, but it was very clear that he was super intelligent, knew what he was doing, and he was going to do it. Meeting the man in person um, and hearing him talk about this car, the, the, the then, then still to be released first Tesla Roadster, it was very clear that he was not going to fail. And mm. on the strength of that, I ordered one. And you ordered a Roadster and shipped it I ordered a Roadster. Yep. And, and by then, of course, that was just for Californian consumption, right? So I ordered a California spec Tesla Roadster. And I said to Elon, if I order this and take it to Australia, what, what's your reaction going to be? And he said, as long as you deal with the fact that it's at a huge distance and I don't have to, you go right ahead. So I ordered <laughs> one. Uh, I ordered one. I, have num- I still have it. I still own it. It's number 186. Um, and um, dragged it out to Australia. By, by the time it was made... Um, the time it was actually available to me physically, 2009. So the, they were stu- the construction started in 08 of those cars, and they, I got mine in 09. Uh, it turned out that the, the guys at the the the, the then Clipsal 500 car race, the Hoon race in Adelaide, got wind of the fact that I ordered this thing, and um, they realised that if they air freighted it out, they could get it out in time to do some demo laps of the event. So literally a week a week before the event. We pulled amazing strings, and this thing wound up in the belly of a, of a 747 freighter and turned up at the racetrack in Adelaide. And I, the first time I'd ever driven that car was on the racetrack. In front of God knows how many people. <laughs> yes, exactly. And I'm thinking, gee, this better work. Um, this is not going to look good if it stops. Uh, and, and, of course, and did it, it work? Didn't. It worked really well. It worked brilliantly. And I then drove the car from Darwin to Adelaide in a companion event to the um, World Solar Challenge and took my own charging infrastructure with me. It was all done by me. Took my own infrastructure with me, a, char- a, a diesel, a diesel um, generator on the back of a truck that followed me down the road to the great amusement of the journalism community um, and, and drove this car from Darwin to Adelaide. What they didn't get was, I wasn't, you know, there was no charging infrastructure, right? So I had to bring yes. my own. I was just trying to prove that you could buy an EV and drive it from Darwin to Adelaide, Adelaide like that wasn't special. Yes. And I, and I did that and it worked just fine. <laughs> So how often did you use it just driving around the streets of Adelaide? Now, that was the real bugger. Um, it turns out that in Australia, to protect the apparent, well, at that point at least, apparent industry, I suppose, I don't actually I don't know why it is. I think it's just this tendency for Australians to regulate because they can. Um, left-hand drive cars are a real challenge to register for normal use in Australia unless the car is either so old that it is historic which means the Australian design rules that apply were ones that were so old they forgot to care about this, or it's a garbage truck. 
you know, a dual control vehicle, <laughs> dual control vehicle for a specific, you know, for a specific reason. How much so room did you have car- in the back seat of the roadster for garbage? Well, right. So it turns out that if, if your car is not an antique or a garbage truck, you can't get, or at least you couldn't get at the time, um, permanent normal registration. So I could only get special event registration. The only times I ever drove it were special events. I drove it from Darwin to Adelaide on a, on a permit that the, New, that the Northern Territory government happily gave me. They called, they called it a solar car because that suited them. They... Um, and I did some other events. I took it to Canberra and did some events for Aiva, just taking people on laps around a closed piece of Canberra Road. You know, it was it was it was as if it was something something kind of you know th- th- something bad would happen if it went on the road without without being followed by a man with a red flag. You know, it God, was it was actually very, it was actually very funny. So in the end, after a year or so of running it in EV events and basically on my own nickel doing doing um, promotional things with it. And it meant I had to, I actually had to buy a trailer for it because I had to trailer it in. Oh, no. Um, right. After a year of that, I just sent it back to America. And it, oh. to this day, is in a buddy's um, garage in America. And when I'm in the States, I go drive my old car. And otherwise, because it's electric, it just sits there plugged in, keeping the batteries topped up, and nothing bad happens to it. <laughs> and you know, one of the great things about internal combustion, about the lack of internal combustion engine, right? Nothing wears out. I was going to suggest if it was a left-hand drive, then maybe you should have volunteered to drive it on the other side of the road, but that probably wouldn't have worked very well either. Yeah, that, um. that appeals. So, so, that was, so that was the first of multiple times that I have been Tesla's first customer in Australia. You must, you must have been delighted then when the Model S with the right-hand drive finally arrived in Australia, which was which year now? 2012 or 2013? Oh, yeah, yeah, I lose track around about then. I mean, yes. in the middle there, I was the first Roadster customer again. Because when Tesla started selling roasters in Australia, and they did, I bought the first one of those. Ah, okay. Right. And, and then, believe it or not, um, and this is me being absolutely tragic, when they sold the very last and the very best roadster that was ever made for Australian delivery, I also bought that. Uh, so that one in the middle has been sold. Yes. Uh, and the, the California one's in California. Uh, and and that, that third one is actually on the market at the moment, which is a gorgeous... Um, so the best one they're ever going to make, a Roadster 2.5 Sport, orange and carbon fibre black. It looks like a rolling Jaffa. Uh, it's, it's a fantastic <laughs> thing. Um, it's on the market right now only because I actually ordered Elon's new Roadster because I'm that tragic. Oh, the, the one that was sent out to space, or was that just a carbon? Just no, 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 no. The one, the one they announced and they've shown demos of that's deliberately designed to beat all the hypercars flat, you know, 400 kilometre an hour, 0 to 100 in two and a half seconds. Um, that, that would be that fun, thing. wouldn't it? Um, how on, why on earth do I keep buying these cars and how on earth can I afford it? Because I liked Elon so much, I also bought a chunk of Tesla stock when it was 28 bucks. Ah, well, you would have been doing very well then. So you sell one share every now and again and buy a new car. Yeah, <laughs> correct. No, that is literally what I do. And it's a virtuous circle that most early Tesla fans actually have engaged in. Uh, and it works. Yeah. Tell me then, so you've got a, you, you've got a couple of um, Tesla vehicles. You've got the Roadster. You've got an S. Right. Um, I think you've got an X as well, the SUV. Yeah, we've got an, yes. yeah I've, actually, I've actually got, got, got uh, an S. An S that I've turned over and, and sent down to a, a property we're fortunate, fortunate to have in Tassie. I've got another S and my wife's got an X, correct. Fantastic. Tell me about your charging thing because this is, I'm, I like to ask people about how they charge their vehicles because it's the great mystery for people who don't have electric vehicles. Yeah, yeah it is. It is. Yes. It's, it's great fascination. You know, we know, and it starts with the breathless, breathless question, what happens if it runs out of power? To which the answer is, it stops. <laughs> <laughs> you know, which is exactly the same answer as what happens in a petrol engine car, of course, right? It stops. It's just that the, 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 there's this tremendously important shift in how you treat the vehicle that's easy and it solves everything, which is the light bulb moment. Treat it like your mobile phone. 
you know, which is every time you go home, plug it in so it charges while you sleep. And that produces two interesting answers to the obvious question. How long does it take to charge, you know, and what happens if you run out of juice, right? Mm -hmm. How long does it take to charge? Answer, I don't care, I'm asleep at the time. Yes. And, um, you know, what happens if you run out of juice? Well, I never do because it's full every single morning. Right. That's interesting. And so, so it's over. You know, it's over. Yes. That slight so, and, and that's the irony, is that it takes 10 seconds to charge an electric car. The time it takes to get out and plug the thing in and walk out of your own garage. That is it, right? So it's actually faster than an internal combustion engine because everything else that happens while you sleep doesn't matter, exactly like your mobile phone, right? Isn't it? Exactly the same idea. That's interesting then, because we, I was talking to Alan Finkel in the previous episode, and um, he's, he, he, he asked, I asked him about the EV charging things, and he says, well, what do you do with your petrol car? How often do you fill it up? And I said, once a week. And he goes, well, isn't that when, you know, the, the, the button starts going um, orange and you're just about to run out of fuel? And I go, yes. And he says, well, that's what we do when, with, with an EV. He charges every second or third day. But um, yeah, you're yeah, an everyday charger. Too. Yeah, I just had a habit. Um, uh, I generally, my, my wife isn't, and we both got hundred kilowatt hour cars, right? So, so after, yeah, you're right. After after most of a week, uh, the, the the you know the, the lights starting to go red, and she gets around to plugging it in. That's all. There's also nothing wrong with that. Yeah, um, yeah. Because the the range on these cars is so much longer than the distance you routinely drive that there is genuinely no emergency. And the only thing you actually need the supercharger network for, something Tesla have impressively built around the planet, is long distance driving. You know, or short notice need to ram a lot of energy in, um, and it solves that incredibly well. But mm. um, you know, I rarely use it because I'm rarely driving interstate. Right, right, right. So you know, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in Adelaide, right? You know, if you're leaving Adelaide to go somewhere else, you generally hop on a plane. Yes, yes. If you were to do that Darwin to um, Adelaide trip now in one of your um, modern Teslas, um, presumably you've got the infrastructure there to do it. Well, the infrastructure is getting there to do it now. That's the thing. There are charging stations on that road these days. I don't think there are superchargers on that particular path, but there are, there are fast enough chargers um, that, yeah, you get the job done perfectly well there as well. Um, well, we've actually the, had the charging. Yeah, the charging thing is not it's not trivial but it's it's really no biggie anymore yeah we've actually had a couple of stories um on renew economy and also the driven um, um chronicling people's um trips around australia including sylvia who's uh, 70 had a model s and drove around australia yeah. and um got a bit of free charging from staying overnight at places and i think the whole thing cost her 150 dollars in electricity well, exactly. I mean, back in 2009, when I took my own charging infrastructure with me, there was one other group from a Queensland university who had an experimental converted Commodore that they converted to electric. And uh, they didn't bring charging infrastructure. They, their approach, and it actually worked, was they, they'd pull up at a petrol station because the petrol stations invariably had a diesel genset out the back in case the power failed. And they'd say, I see you have this genset. I have this six pack. <laughs> How about you lend me some power and I'll give you a six pack? And they said, sure. <laughs> you know, so, so, yeah, there are, there are lots of ways to solve that. But these days, you know, I mean, that used to be the kind of you know, the, the war stories of how we found somewhere to charge. That that's not the modern world. You know, the modern world is your major charging spot is your own garage. Yeah. And, and, and it charges while you sleep and have a nice day. And the big thing Tesla did was producing cars with enough range that you didn't have to care about it during the day because mm. that's what used to be the real hassle. If you're in a, a Nissan Leaf, it still doesn't have quite enough range. You know, you, you drive around all day and by, by mid-afternoon, you're actually starting to wonder about where you're going to plug in. Mm. Uh, but mm. that's, with, a, but with, a, with a Tesla, with, you just don't care. Mm. You know, and and that, that, that extra range is really there so you don't have to care. 
Yes, yes, yeah. So what happens then when we get a lot more electric vehicles, and I'm going to ask you about your sort of forecast for that, um, with that charging, and now you just sort of plug it in now, um, you've actually probably, you've got a lot of solar and storage at your um, house anyway, but what happens for the general population? Are we going to need to be able to sort of stagger this and control this and make sure that not everyone's coming home at 7 o'clock in the evening and plugging in? Yeah, that's an interesting question. And for me, to, to maximise my use of off-peak electricity, because the cars pull enough power that often they will drain the batteries at home, um, you know, and that's not a bad thing. I charge them up with sun during the day, right? But, but I actually program the cars, which is trivial with the Teslas, to start charging at, at one o'clock in the morning. So that they're running always on off-peak power. Um, the, right. There's two, two interesting charging approaches, right? What, where I do find myself charging now, in fact, is my office, because it turns out in my office I have a big solar array, a big solar, solar sort of shade structure over the staff car park. And so the Tesla charges there when the sun's shining and the sun's going straight into the, into the tank, right? So that's genuinely zero emission you know, solar, solar transport happening. That's a mm. genuine solar car. If you've, so, so I think if you're fortunate to have an employer who's able to and interested to put a solar shade structure in to the car park, that's a fabulous way to do it. Because mm. now you're charging where the car's sitting when the sun's shining. You know, no extra batteries needed. Yeah? Mm. So that's point one. Point two, many, many years ago, someone I, I, I worked with um, in one of the unis here actually did the maths on the answer to the question, what would happen if, let's say, three quarters of the Australian population were using EVs, right? Like, like what would you need to expand the capacity of the power grid? What would that peak demand look like? Because the peak demand is going to happen at night, overnight when you're charging, yeah? Mm -hmm. And the answer is, as long as you stagger the start times, you can get to 75% um, of the population running EVs before you have to even think about increasing the electricity grid capacity. That's as long as you as long as, as, you, long stagger. as you stagger the start times. Yes. Staggering the start times is a software thing. Every Tesla is on the internet. That's trivial. That's yes. a bit a software. That's really not a problem. Well, that's right, because if you, if you think about the grid, it's got so much excess capacity at time of times of low demand, and I think AEMA have actually done a bit, a crunch the numbers as well, and their numbers suggested that 50% um, electric vehicles would add about 15% in demand on the grid, but of course, if you shut that at the times when there's low demand, you don't have an issue. Right, and, and a couple of related points. Um, EVs, again, being software-driven beasts, right? There's no problem, um, no technical problem, setting up an EV to be capable of being told to stop charging in the same way that the grid operators can tell your air conditioner to turn off. Right. So if there was a problem, they could load shed the EVs very easily if they right. needed to, right? Yes. That'd be easy if the, in the unlikely event, yeah? And, and the, to agree with you, the point about the electricity grid is absent of batteries in the grid, the grid has to be engineered for the most busy minute of the year, right? The yes. highest demand minute of the year, which is that 40 in Adelaide, that 45 degrees Celsius afternoon where every aircon is going for it. And that peak draw, you know, the whole grid, every pipe in that, in that big water supply has to be engineered for that. And every other minute of the year, you get nowhere near it. The capacity for, for, for supply in the electricity, modern electricity grid is incredibly high. Yes, that's right. So, yeah, which adds to the attraction of having something like a battery, because if you can actually use the battery yeah, yeah, to, yeah. To, to meet that peak demand, then um, you solve a lot of problems and save a lot of right. money. Right, right. The, the, the short thesis for why, why batteries are so cool in grids, apart, for, apart from getting rid, of the, getting rid of burning the smelly stuff, is that they convert a network that is engineered for the peak minute to a network that can be engineered for the, for the long-term average usage. Yes. Of, 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 that, of that thing. They convert electricity 
from something which is an unusual device to, to sell, an unusual thing to sell. Electrons are unusual because you can't stock them, uh, use it or lose it. If you can put them in stock in a battery, you create an ordinary commerce market from what is currently an extraordinary one. And all that rubbish about, about you know, very high amounts of dollars per kilowatt hour to save the grid from itself, all of that stuff goes away. It becomes a very boring, very much lower cost market because mm. it becomes competitive. So let's, what's, your, what's your outlook for the EVs? We're starting to see, or we're going to see over the next couple of months, um, some new vehicles entering the market. We're going, I think we're going to see the Ionic range, which is, um, which is a, um, a, a hybrid and a full battery model. I think we're seeing the Roe, uh, Renault Zoe on the, um, on the market. We're seeing the Nissan Leaf being unveiled pretty soon. We'll start to see the Tesla Model 3. So we're starting to get the prices down to about mm. the 50 grand, 60 grand. Um, that's not quite going to do it for the mass market, but it's getting there. Yep. What, 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 what's your, what, I mean, and, and look, and there's, and there's report after report just pointing out how Australia is being a laggard on this, and we're just you know so far yes. behind some of the other Western countries, which is really frustrating. Mm -hmm. What do you think is going to happen, and what do you think, and, and should we, should we make efforts to accelerate the transition that everyone says is inevitable but could be delayed because of you know a lack of choice? Right, um, a couple of things there, and I, I'm very resonant with the with the, the gentleman that you had on your on um, the Driven podcast recently, noting that the the real transformation point is when EVs don't cost more to buy than a conventional car, absolutely, and yeah, that, that will happen. Mm. Yeah, that will absolutely happen. It makes sense because so much is going into making that the case. They are already cheaper in terms of total cost of ownership. The thing people don't factor in is servicing costs in the life of an internal combustion engine car, right? Yes. That, that, that really, it's not just the fuel, it's the servicing costs that kill you. And everything that costs money, with rare exception, is actually to do with the internal combustion engine. I don't got one of them anymore, right? Mm. So, so yeah, it all makes sense, ultimately. Let's talk about rate. We remain the first world country in the world distinguished by our almost complete lack of government incentives at any level for the ownership of these things. Yes. And I think that is probably unconscious. It is a part of our national policy paralysis with respect to anything to do with energy, right? Yes. It's, a perif it's peripheral damage in, in that process that, 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 that no, no, no likely to get elected federal government in Australia has any clue about this stuff. But the point is, as a result of that, we are taking them up more slowly because the, the incentives do work. They work in the same way that they worked in solar, right? We provided some economic incentives. Solar in Australia went mad. We are a world leader in home solar mm. because we got those incentives right. We desperately need to convert that to incentives for home batteries. And that is finally starting to happen. Yay. Yes, in, South, in, yes. Yeah, in South Australia. Yeah, exactly. And, um, and in Victoria, I think, to, to a lesser extent. But that, um, yeah, no. That's, um, and, and that's great. That's great. Uh, it really is. And that will have a similar accelerant effect. There's no such real incentives happening here compared to the US where you get a big tax incentive and or cash grants or both. In California, you get support from federal and state um, in those respects. And there's been so much support that the federal scheme is now running out for Tesla because they've sold so many cars into it, you know, mm. because it's actually working. Mm. Now, what does it mean if we don't? Not that we don't get the good stuff, but that we get it later than the rest of the world. And for a country which has a fantastic history of being full of early adopters, I think that is just a massive pity. You know, it's not, it's not terrible. We won't die directly because of it. It just really annoys me that we mm. could be a part of this change 
more you know earlier in such an easy manner and and it's just that lack of inspiration to provide a bit of incentive to get on with it what, what, what do you think's holding politicians back now i mean i keep on scratching my head about this and look yeah. we, we, we i mean i don't want to get into sort of personal things about individual politicians or what have you but it no, just no, seems to be that. a common it just seems to be a common theme we just seem to be afraid somehow of adopting new technologies and right and it feels and it feels like you know it, 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 we're forced to guess right and here's some guesses um, you know, one guess. Well, I used to guess that it was because promoting EVs when when Australia didn't make any was going to somehow damage the local car industry. Well, how well did that work? Um, you know, yes. You know, how, yes. How did that work out for you, boys? Yes. Right. You know, and ironically, the the, the truth is the reverse. And we have people like Sanjeev Gupta now threatening, in a positive sense, to make some low-cost EVs in Adelaide, and I bloody well hope he does. Yes. Um, and you notice he will do that despite the lack of incentives. Um, and, and that's the thing, right? In solar, in batteries, in EVs, this is going to happen. The real question is, do we want to be world leaders or laggards in it? And, and I just hope that a future government has a bit more inspiration. Because um, it is just about attitude at, at the end of the day. Um, it, it, it has to be. Yeah, look, I really hope so. Simon, just before we sort of tail off here, um, I just thought I'd ask you about um, Redflow. Um, you're the largest mm. shareholder in, in Redflow, and um, you were chairman for a while and chief executive, and um, and uh, you are chief integration officer um, now, having decided that um, that um, to sort of stand back from those board duties. How are you going there? You started manufacturing in um, in Thailand. I think you're starting to sort of roll out um, some orders and some more installations. Um, and this, of course, is your your zinc bromine batteries. Right. So, yeah, actually, uh, system integration architect, but, you know, what's our oh. name? Um, <laughs> the, exactly. I'm, I'm, I'm starting to focus back on the thing I love about that battery, which is actually is technology. It's a very high technology battery. It's got lots of cool, cool aspects. It's not, it's not a dumb box of chemicals. It's actually an energy storage machine. We only call it a battery to avoid frightening the horses. Um, <laughs> it's, a di it's a different sort of way to store energy. And its focus is stationary energy, so sitting it alongside solar arrays all the way from a home to an office to a grid, not, not in a car is the point. Uh, and it's going well after lots of false starts um, and a lot of support from shareholders, including but not limited to me. We, yeah, we've, we've moved the factory to a better spot. We're in production now and we've finally, um, finally got new batteries on, on sitting on boats heading towards Australia and a few other of our markets. So by the end of this year, I think we'll be finally be back to selling great batteries. Quite looking forward to it. The batteries work great. We, the company as a startup just had to do an enormous manufacturing reset. Because one of the challenges with making a truly unique product is that when something goes wrong, there isn't someone else to ask. You've got to fix it yourself. You've got to bury yes. your own dead. Well, we've done that, and and thankfully we're yeah we're getting back in, back in the road again. Meanwhile, I've got this big array of these things in my office, 450 kilowatt hours of them sitting under a 100 kilowatt solar array in my office. And as the weather gets better towards summer, I'm looking forward to having a negative power bill all of the time. Well, that's fantastic. <laughs> and look, it's really interesting. I think more businesses, um, small, medium and large around Australia are starting to pick up on that and, um, and are shifting pretty rapidly towards it. So, um, they are. so the, pros the prospect looks good. Mm. Mm, it does. And again, again, that ultimately, business case ultimately wins. It's just a question of whether there'll be enough incentives to, to, for us to be an exemplar of the change ahead of the change rolling over us as a consequence of it being proven in other markets. And obviously I'm trying to prove it in you know, my own market, in my own office, 
And I think that's what we all do, isn't it, right? If in, in, the fa in, the, in the presence of a, a failure of inspiration from government, individuals, to the best extent they can, try to be their own examples of the change. Absolutely. But we do, we, we do wonder about what we could have done, you know, with, um, if, we, if, if we could or can just seize that opportunity, because the opportunity is just so immense. And we've heard people and, good talking about it and, and others. Yep. Yeah. And we still can. And, and I'm, I applaud his efforts in, in doing that. And I think that is the best thing to do, right? You just, you just keep being out there being an obvious example of the reality. And then eventually governments kind of catch up. Fantastic. Simon Hackett, it's been great talking to you. I've really enjoyed the chat about EVs and, um, and, and the other things and, and, and batteries. And um, thank you very much for joining us. Been an absolute pleasure, Giles. Good on you. Bye-bye. And that was Simon Hackett, one of the largest shareholders in the battery storage company Redflow, and as you have heard, one of the biggest enthusiasts for electric vehicles in Australia. I do hope you enjoy the interview. We'll be back with another episode of the uh, Driven podcast next week with a completely different take, this time on an electric conversion of a classic vehicle. Bye for now. The Driven podcast was brought to you by ZeroMo, the non-profit initiative that supports battery electric alternatives for garden maintenance. ZeroMo helps transition to cleaner and quieter garden power tools and electric vehicles powered by 100% renewable energy. Visit zeromo.com.au and find out how you can make the switch to zero greenhouse gas emissions for your garden.